my friends, you are listening to this special Labor Day edition of the Royal Ramble. Depending where you are in the world, I hope you're enjoying your well-deserved day off. And for those of you who may be working, I hope this serves as one of the bright spots of your day. I'm your host, Blaine the Brain, and I have a jam-packed edition of the show today with a trifecta of pay-per-view reviews. Trifecta, there's a fun word. I don't want to waste any more time, but before we get into it, I do have to address the elephant in the room, which everyone, everywhere, all at once is talking about, and that is the fact that Mr. Chicago, Mr. Straight Edge, Mr. Chick Magnet, CM Punk, has finally overstayed his welcome in All Elite Wrestling. AEW president Tony Khan made the startling announcement just two days ago that the company has come to terms on the release of Phil Brooks. Now, I can see some fans being outraged by that, and others, including myself, say it's about time, but it was still unexpected, not because Punk was released, but because that has been a long time coming, but the fact that Tony actually grew a set and finally did something right. He definitely needs to separate Tony the Mark from Tony the Boss. I actually agreed with Punk's stance in the Jungle Boy fight, but he went about it in completely the wrong way, much like he did in the All Out Presser last year. I ultimately think Tony made the right call, as an example had to be made of someone to send a message to the whole locker room and who better to make an example of than someone at the top of the card? It needed to be done. Hopefully this solves the ongoing problems that AEW has been having lately, and we can stop dwelling on it and just start enjoying wrestling again. So I'm not going to dwell on it. Let's move on to something else a little more positive, and that's the all the fantastic events that us fans have been spoiled by in recent weeks. Aside from Mania Weekend, this may be the hottest two weeks of the annual wrestling calendar, and this year may have set a new standard. Impact had their emergence show last weekend to kick things off. I did watch the show, but I won't go into much detail there because I don't consider it as one of their premium events. I didn't care for the atmosphere, to be honest. I wasn't so much a fan of the dimly lit arena. It kind of resembled more of a ballroom or prom night setting and just made Impact feel much more inferior as a wrestling product. But they made up for it in terms of in-ring quality. I thought the tag title match in particular was really good, and I'm looking forward to the title run of the Rascals moving forward. I was kind of surprised that they chose to end the show with the Knockouts title match, and even more surprised that Trinity went over again, but with Jordan Grace now back in the promotion, that seems to be the logical direction for Bound for Glory next month, unless Mickey James is expected to return by then. I'm not so sure what direction you go for the world title match, but there are multiple possibilities with Alex Shelley as the champion, so whichever way they choose, I'm sure it'll be something special. And then on Sunday, August 27th, it was quite possibly the pay-per-view of the year. Actually, having watched it live, I'm not even sure that there was any question about it. It was probably AEW's best pay-per-view to date, and maybe among the top five wrestling pay-per-views of all time, and that's all in. I spoke about the man earlier, that being CM Punk. He was in the opening match against Samoa Joe. The fact that this was not for the ROH television title did kind of telegraph what the outcome would be, at least for me, but it was still a great match, and I appreciate the throwback to their original ROH feud. Having not watched any of those matches, I'm not sure that this lived up to the standards set in that trilogy, but it was still a fun match. There was also the distraction of hearing the reports of the backstage scuffle between Punk and Jack Perry before the match even started, but I said I wouldn't dwell on it, so I'll just mention that in passing. Punk came out wearing his old ROH entrance attire, which I felt was kind of a nice touch. There was a spot where Punk was kind of teetering on the middle rope, and Joe was meeting him head-on with knife-edge chops. 
Later on, Joe drew first blood, both literally and figuratively, swinging Punk headfirst right through the front of the announce table, which busted his head wide open. For some reason, Punk was working as the heel in the match, which I found quite odd, considering that Joe was the actual heel. There was a spot where he teased John Cena's five moves of doom, which was meant by a chorus of boos, and then delivered Hulk Hogan's ear taunt, followed by the running leg drop. Before I continue, I should also mention how impressed I was by the production of the event. I have to give Tony his props there. The show looked fantastic. Punk then paid tribute to the late Terry Funk with Funk's famous spinning toehold, and then Punk pulled out a move that he hadn't used probably since his original ROH run, and that's the Pepsi plunge off the top rope, which finally put Joe away. One of the things I liked about AEW pay-per-views is that there's no wasted time. They just transitioned right from match to match, and that led into match two, which was the big six-man tag, with Kenny Omega, Kota Ibushi, and Hangman Page taking on Bullet Club Gold and Konosuke Takeshita. This one was wild, and the pace quickened very early, probably as expected. Juice was being volleyed at one point back and forth with chops by the babyface team. There was another spot where Ibushi was not only eating these stiff forearms, but also inviting them, which I guess is a common spot in New Japan. I'm not so much a fan of the no-selling, but it does make bigger moves look more effective. Omega was isolated in the heel corner for the next little while, and they built to the showdown between Kenny and Takeshita. Hangman tried for the buckshot lariat, but this is where the guns got involved from the outside, so Hangman hit them with a moonsault to the floor. The ref lost complete control of the match by the end, which is pretty normal for AEW matches. Kenny took both Bullet Club members out with V-triggers, but then Takeshita, who was apparently the legal man, not that anyone's counting, sneaks back in and schoolboys Omega from behind for the surprise victory. The world tag titles were up for grabs next between defending champions FTR and the Young Bucks in the rubber match of their trilogy, though it seems that the fourth match may be forthcoming. I was a little surprised that this match happened so early in the show, but it really set the tone for the rest of the night, and this is the match, in my opinion, that took this pay-per-view to the next level. This was fantastic, and definitely in contention for match of the year. These two teams rarely disappoint, especially in matches against each other. FTR was wearing armbands to pay tribute to some of their fallen brothers with the initials of Brody Lee, Bray Wyatt, and Jay Briscoe on there. There was a great sequence between Dax Harwood and Matt Jackson where they were countering from rolling Germans into rolling Northern Light suplexes. There was a spot where both teams tried the power and glory spot, but as each of their opposing team members hit the mat after a superplex, both other team members tried splashes from opposing corners, but both were met with knees to the midsection. There was a nice tease slash throwback to the finish of the Brett versus Bulldog match with the reverse victory roll on one of the Bucks, but they kicked out. The BTE trigger missed and the Bucks bumped knees. FTR then tried an FTR trigger followed by a double cheek kiss to Matt and then drilled him with the shatter machine for a near fall. The Bucks came back with a BTE trigger for a near fall. They then went for the Meltzer driver, which was countered, and FTR finally hit the shatter machine for the clean win. After the match, FTR offered to shake hands, but the Bucks rejected the offer and left the ring, signaling a heel turn. Stadium Stampede was next, and this definitely exceeded my expectation. Tony Schiavone replaced JR on commentary as Ross had called the first three matches. I'm not sure how I feel about these rotating announcers. Eddie Kingston immediately races to the ring and starts brawling with Claudio in the entranceway to kick things off. Moxley brings out a branding iron at one point, I guess as another tribute to Terry Funk. Mox then brings out meat skewers, but wears a bunch of them, as Penta just hammers them into Moxley's forehead, which looked disgusting. 
It was like something you'd see in an 80s cartoon. Mox retaliates by drilling a fork into the forehead of Orange Cassidy. Eddie then brings out an umbrella and tries to open it in the mouth of Wheeler Yuta. Trent's mom, Sue, then arrives in her minivan, and I'm not sure how she even made it to the arena, driving on the wrong side and all. Moxley approaches the driver's side and actually kisses Sue on the lips. Renee can't be too happy about that one. Suddenly, then, some eerie music starts playing as Penta morphs into his Penta Oscuro character, which is kind of ridiculous and seemed to take forever. He attempted a spot off the ladder to Mike Santana, but the ladder broke, and he was still determined to hit the sunset powerbomb through the table, which he eventually does off the broken ladder, which could have ended very badly. It was kind of weird to hear Excalibur call Santana by his full name all night. Chuck later gets suplexed onto Lego pieces on the floor. Cassidy then hits three consecutive orange punches to Claudio in the ring, and Excalibur does a great job of noting that the punches aren't as effective after the damage that was done to O.C.'s hand earlier in the match, which kind of begs the question why he would attempt to use that hand in the first place. Orange's taped fist actually had the adhesive on the outside, which allows him to outfit his hand with broken glass like something from a Rambo movie. Eddie comes back with a barbed wire chair meant for Claudio. After using it, he hits a spinning back fist to both Claudio and Mox. He then spears Moxley through the barbed wire table in the corner. As Orange drops Claudio with the orange punch with broken glass to finally win the match for his team. This match was incredible. The four-way match is next for the AEW women's title with Hikaru Shida defending against Soraya, Tony Storm, and Dr. Britt Baker. Soraya actually comes out with her whole family, including her brother, Zach Zodiac, and her wrestler parents. And apparently Tony, con that is, has really ponied up some dough to use some Queen songs for this event, including We Will Rock You for Soraya. I thought Nigel did a great job of putting over Storm in this match, and I really like Tony Storm's new look and her film noir character. There was a great spot on the floor where Soraya's mother grabs hold of Britt from her ringside seat, and Tony tries a forearm, but Britt avoids it, and Soraya Sr. ends up taking the blow, which doesn't sit too well with the younger Soraya. She and Tony then immediately implode, and then Ruby runs down to try and make peace, but Tony nails Ruby, who, fr who gets frustrated and leaves. Soraya then applies the PTO to, I believe, Tony, and Britt hits the stomp to Tony while still in the move, which looked great. Britt then tries to apply the lockjaw on Cheetah, who counters by gritting her teeth, and as Britt struggles with that, Tony runs in with the belt but is met by Soraya, who blasts her with the spray can and hits the rampage on Tony to win the belt. Ultimately, I think this was the right call, but I wonder if this was the moment intended for Jamie Hayter instead before her injury. The coffin match was next. It was Swerve Strickland and Christian Cage facing Sting and Darby Allen. This was another brutal match, especially for Darby, who was just punishing his own body throughout. Sting actually resurrected his old Metallica theme music for this entrance. He and Darby then pulled out what I initially thought were studded ring jackets in the coffin, but they were actually tacks attached to the jacket. Tackets, if you will. A cricket bat was also introduced in this one, and I feel like these matches often get too gimmicky and kind of distract from the actual gimmick of the match. Darby was handcuffed at one point behind his back, and he actually delivered a moonsault with his hands tied up, which looked very impressive. Sting then tried to splash Swerve through an outside table, but it didn't break, and then Sting hit a seated splash on the, off the apron to finally break the table. Luchasaurus eventually comes out, but he's cut off by Nick Wayne. Lucha drops Wayne with a headbutt and then chokeslams him onto a skateboard at ringside and then just kind of carries Wayne to the back. 
Darby later tries a coffin drop on Swerve, but Swerve moves, and Darby crashes backburst into the coffin, which had to hurt for days. Sting is placed in the coffin, but blocks the lid from being shut using his baseball bat. Sting then reverses things and puts Swerve in the coffin, and Swerve actually blocks the lid with his hands, but then Darby delivers a coffin drop, which finally closes the coffin lid, and could have broken off Swerve's fingers, but I'm assuming he must have moved them in time. Anyway, the babyfaces win and couldn't care less about what happened to Nick Wayne. Chris Jericho versus Will Ospreay is next, and Jericho performs himself to the ring with Judas, accompanied by his Fozzie bandmates. At this point, Taz replaces Shivani to call the rest of the show. In the early going, Osprey delivers a Sky Twister press to the floor, but Jericho retaliates with a released German suplex on the ring apron, and Osprey took a bad landing on the back of his neck. With Jericho draped front first across the top rope, Osprey hit a shooting star press from the top turnbuckle. Jericho does kick out of the first os cutter. As Jericho applies the walls of Jericho, Callus tries to distract the ref, but it backfires as it allows Sammy Guevara to nail Osprey in the head with a bat. Jericho hits the code breaker for two. Jericho then hits his own os cutter, but Osprey comes back with a pair of consecutive storm breakers to finally put Jericho away. After the match, Sammy is trying to get the crowd behind Jericho, but Jericho gets frustrated and pushes Sammy away before walking off. Nigel then announces the paid attendance record of 81,035 people, which again is incredible. And then I forgot all about this match, but it was for the trios title, with House of Black defending against the acclaimed and badass Billy Gunn. House of Black's entire entrance was clearly Wyatt-inspired, which was a nice tribute. The match was house rules, so basically the challengers get to decide on the stipulation, which ended up being no holds barred. Julia tries to distract at one point, but Billy answers with a crotch-chop taunt, a reference that is about five years older than Julia. Mercedes Monet, the former Sasha Banks, is also shown in attendance during this match. There was a nasty spot on the floor where Brody misses a crossbody on Billy and crashes into the guardrail. Later on, Brody accidentally nails Malachi with a chain. The Acclaim then hit the triple-team Famouser on Matthews, but Julia pulls Aubrey out of the ring to stop the pin. The Acclaim then hit a trifecta of moves on, I believe, Matthews, consisting of a Famouser, the Arrival, and then the mic drop to finally win the titles as all three babyfaces pile on top for the pin. After the match, House of Black basically hands the belt over to the Acclaim, so I guess we have a face turn here. This leads into the main event for the AEW world title between best friends. No, it wasn't Chuck against Trent. It was MJF defending against his new tag team championship partner, Adam Cole, as the two had won the ROH tag titles on the Zero Hour, defeating Aussie Open. Cole actually worked most of this match as a heel, and I didn't really understand that either. MJF at one point was hesitant to deliver the dive to the floor, so Cole races back into the ring. He drops MJF with a super kick and then rips off their Better Than You Bebe shirt, which earns him some boobs. There was a spot where they each tried each other's moves. First, MJF attempted a Panama Sunrise, but was caught in midair with a super kick, and then Cole hit the Heat Seeker for a near fall. Cole then drilled MJF with a brain buster on the ring steps, and they teased a count out as MJF was motionless on the floor until literally a nine count, but did end up making it into the ring before 10. MJF then tried a tombstone on the announce desk, but again hesitated and couldn't do it but then Cole ended up hitting the tombstone on the table. There was a spot where MJF hit a destroyer in the ring, but Cole bounced off the ropes and hit a super kick, and they hit the double clothesline on each other and ended up in a double pin predicament. 
Cole then grabbed a microphone and demanded five more minutes, and MJF responded that they should go until there's a winner. So the match continues, and there's almost an immediate ref bump. They then try to pull an Eddie Guerrero spot on each other as they keep passing a chair back and forth, and both guys try to fake injuries. I'm not sure how that would have benefited Cole to win by DQ. Later in the match, Cole tries a Panama Sunrise, but MJF pulls referee Bryce Remsburg in his position, and Cole for some reason delivers the move on Bryce instead. Roderick Strong then comes out and nails MJF with a low blow, unbeknownst to Cole, who hit a Panama Sunrise and then exposes his knee to run it into the back of MJF's head, but MJF kicks out. Strong then gets on the apron and passes the title belt to Cole to use, yelling that he's Cole's best friend, not MJF. Cole throws the belt down, causing Roddy to get frustrated and walk off. Cole's momentary distraction allows MJF to scoop him into an inside cradle to keep the belt. After the match, MJF brings in the ROH tag belts and says this match could have gone either way, but at least they still have these. Cole gets frustrated and throws the tag belt away, and then MJF starts yelling that he thought Cole was his best friend, and if it's the title he was after, then he can have it. MJF then turns his back and suggests that Cole hit him with the belt, but then Roderick Strong comes back and keeps yelling at Cole to do it. Instead, Cole puts the belt down and he and MJF hug, causing the crowd to explode. Sometimes I will never understand wrestling fans, but it is what it is. I'm still curious to see where this one goes. The Kingdom then joins Roderick Strong at ringside, and they all look on disapprovingly at Cole and MJF, as Excalibur notes that next year's All In will also be at Wembley, which ends this great night of wrestling. And it didn't end there, because then there was also the events of this past weekend, starting with Saturday's WWE Payback event. Today may be Labor Day, but the working boots were on the rest of the week. The one thing I'll note about the opening video is the line used by Nakamura for Seth Rollins to watch his back. I love this line, and it almost had a triple meaning there. The main card started with the cage match between Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus. I love this match. It was probably the best women's match of the year by far. And I love that it wasn't the usual spot fest, but more closely resembled an old-school cage match, where there was more aggression and the cage itself was the only weapon used. I always hate when additional plunder is used in matches like this because it defeats the whole purpose, which the ending kind of did as well in this one, but I'll get to that in a bit. Michael Cole and Corey Graves are your announced team for this show. Trish hit a Widow's Peak at one point as kind of a tribute to her friend Victoria, who participated in the first WWE Women's Cage match back in 2003, which may have been the first women's cage match ever, but I'll have to fact check that. Becky came back with a twist of fate out of Lita's playbook. There was a spot coming off the rope where Becky looked to have tweaked her knee and Trish went right after it. Trish nailed the Stratus faction for a near fall. She then hit a bulldog from the top rope, which looked really cool, and also got two. Becky then delivered a superplex from the top of the cage, and the camera work on that was great. As Trish tried to escape through the door, Becky grabbed hold of her legs, and then Zoe Stark showed up at ringside and grabbed Trish by the arms, so they kind of had a tug-of-war with Trish as the rope. Becky eventually overpowered, but made the mistake of trying to go after Stark, and Stark slammed the cage door on her head. Back in the ring, Trish missed the chick kick, and Becky planted her with the manhandle slam, but Zoe entered the cage and broke the pin, which is something that also kind of goes against the purpose of the cage. Becky fights Zoe off and then meets Trish on the top rope and hits another manhandle slam off the top turnbuckle to finally put Trish away. After the match, Zoe helps Trish to her feet, but Trish just kind of shrugs her off and slaps her, 
So Zoe closes the door and then attacks Trish, hitting her with the Z360. This part was a little surprising. I thought they'd choose to keep Zoe heel and have Trish return as the babyface. I'm not even sure what you do with a babyface Zoe Stark, to be honest. I suppose Rhea may need another opponent. John Cena comes out to a massive ovation. He's the host of Payback and says of all the things he's ever done in his career, he has never hosted a premium live event. He says to make this night even more special, he's officially making himself the guest referee for the upcoming match between The Miz and LA Knight. Miz comes out and immediately takes exception to this. He says Cena sucks as a host and has no right to make himself the guest referee in his match. Miz says Cena doesn't even have a referee shirt, so Cena pulls one out and says he is the referee for the match. They go back and forth with the no and yeah routine until LA Knight joins them in the ring and the match gets started. Miz gets frustrated in the early going and tries to walk away from the ring, but LA chases him down and brings him back. There was a spot at ringside where Knight was bouncing Miz's head off the announce table, and after every bounce, the fans would do the yeah chant. Miz went for an O'Connor roll and tried using the ropes, but Cena caught him. Miz and Cena then argue, and LA tries to hit Miz from behind, but Miz ducks, and LA almost hits Cena, so they stare each other down for a bit, and the distraction allows Miz to hit a skull-crushing finale for a near fall. Miz then tries to mock Cena with his you-can't-see-me taunt, but Knight comes back with a power slam followed by an elbow drop and then finally the blunt force trauma for the win. Cena then walks with Knight up the ramp, they exchange words, and Cena eventually shakes his hand and gives him the endorsement. Few of the Pittsburgh Steelers are shown at ringside as we go into the U.S. title match with Austin Theory challenging Rey Mysterio. In the early going, Ray tries a springboard, but Theory catches him and plants him with a spinning torture rack bomb for a near fall. Mysterio later hits the 619 but catches knees as he attempts a slingshot splash. Theory goes for the A-Town down, but Mysterio counters into a victory roll for the win, and the LWO then come out to celebrate with him. Kathy Kelly is backstage with Becky Lynch and asks her what's next. Before Becky can answer, she's interrupted by NXT Women's Champion Tiffany Stratton, who sarcastically apologizes for the comment she made about being better than any former NXT Women's Champion, and especially including Becky in that list because she forgot that Becky was never actually champion. Becky says Tiffany should focus on her title defense this coming week, and she will see her soon. The tag titles were on the line next in a Steel City street fight, it was Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn defending their belts against Judgment Day's Damian Priest and Finn Balor. This one was insane and probably match of the night. It was definitely better than I expected. The match was contested under tornado rules, which means it's anything goes and no tags were required. They brought out trash cans and kendo sticks almost immediately, and there was a funny spot where Balor had the trash can over his head while Owens and Zayn were volleying him back and forth with kendo stick shots. They fought through the crowd, at which point Dominic came out to give the heels the advantage. Owens got busted open at one point, and it looked hard way, so I'm not sure how that happened. But it definitely added to the drama of the match. Owens and Zayn were kind of tossed behind these hockey boards and eventually re-emerged wearing Pittsburgh Penguins jerseys and carrying hockey sticks, which were also used as weapons. Back in the ring, Priest drilled Sammy with a falcon arrow onto a stack of chairs, but Owens broke the pin. They fought through the crowd again, and Sammy hit a running cannonball off the kickoff panel desk. KO then set Dominic up on the table in the crowd and hit a swanton off the balcony, crashing through the table, but almost cleared both the table and Dom completely. In the ring, he hit a stunner on Priest, and then Sammy hit the haluva kick, 
but then JD McDonough showed up and pulled Zayn off the cover. Rhea then ran down and speared Owens through the ringside barricade. Back in the ring, Balor missed the coup de grace on Sammy, but rolled through and Sammy hit him with an exploder in the corner and then the Huluva kick, but then Dom attacked Sammy from behind with the Money in the Bank briefcase and Balor rolled into the pin, so we have new tag team champions. This was kind of unexpected, but it will be interesting to see what happens with either team moving forward. The Grayson-Waller effect was the next segment. Waller takes some cheap shots, basically insulting the crowd and city of Pittsburgh before finally introducing his guest, Cody Rhodes. Cody starts with his typical, what do you want to talk about? But Waller cuts him off and says, no one cares what Pittsburgh wants. He asks about Cody's teased announcement. And Cody says he knows what typically happens on these talk shows and asks if they should just skip the talking and go right into the fighting. And Waller backs off and tries to calm down the crowd. Cody says he was watching SmackDown recently and saw a wrong that needed to be righted. So he used some of his political power and pulled some strings, and he then introduced the newest member of the Raw roster, main event Jey Uso. I thought this was kind of weird that Cody would be making this announcement since it really has nothing to do with him. But I wonder if they're going with a Cody heel turn for a program against Jey since the bloodline cost him his match with Roman. Jay gets in the ring and Waller says he may have been part of a great tag team, but has accomplished nothing as an individual. Uso then drops Waller with a super kick and that was the end of it. Rhea versus Raquel for the women's title was up next. Raquel utilized some power moves in the early going, but they ended up taking a toll on her previously injured knee, which became the story of the match with Rhea constantly going after the injury. Raquel managed to escape the prism lock, but then Dominic ran down for the distraction, allowing Rhea to hit the riptide to keep the title. John Cena's in the back, basically dressed as an announcer wearing a bow tie. He interviews the new tag team champions Damian Priest and Finn Balor. Priest says they're a family and brothers fight, but now that they're on the same page, nobody can stop the Judgment Day. The world title match between Shinsuke Nakamura and Seth Rollins closes the show. I really love the story here and love that even a transitional program such as this has some kind of backstory, no pun intended, attached to it. Kudos to Paul Levesque for that. Nakamura had a really cool anime-inspired entrance video as well. And that was basically the story of the match, with the majority of Nakamura's offense focused on the back of Rollins. There was a spot where Rollins was standing on the barricade, and Nakamura basically launched him back first into the announce table, but because there was limited spacing and not enough momentum, the table didn't break, which might have been more painful. There was a nice exchange of forearm shots later on, and then the basic finish was Seth utilizing a standing switch and transitioning right into a pedigree, followed by the stomp for the win. That's how the show ended, but there was a WWE exclusive revealing a post-match Kinshasa by Nakamura into the back of Seth as the referee was helping him away from ringside. Interesting that the program appears to be continuing, and hopefully this puts Nakamura back on the map. Closing out the weekend was AEW All Out that took place just last night in Chicago. It was a little questionable for AEW to promote two pay-per-views in back-to-back -back weeks, but that's become the norm lately, especially for them, and UFC does it constantly. The show opens with the ROH tag title match. I'm not sure why ROH titles would be defended on AEW shows when they technically have their own pay-per-views, but it is what it is. MJF and Adam Cole defended against the Dark Order team of John Silver and Alex Reynolds, and just like on Rampage, it was emphasized in the broadcast that Reynolds actually had a hand in training MJF, so there is at least a backstory there, but I still don't think anyone bet money on the Dark Order. It was a fine match, but not very marquee, especially considering that it's a match involving the world champion and number one contender. 
Excalibur, Nigel McGuinness, and Kevin Kelly were your commentary team that started the show, but as with other pay-per-views, the announcers would rotate throughout. MJF actually starts a sportsmanship chant at one point, because Silver initially rejected Cole's handshake and took a cheap shot. The champs were also wearing NBA jerseys with the number 23 on them, which is a very famous Chicago number and another MJ who's missing the F. There was a spot on the floor where a distraction allows Reynolds to sneak in a chair shot to MJF's neck, which takes him out of the match temporarily, and Cole basically has to wrestle a handicap match for the next few minutes. MJF eventually returns and hits the kangaroo kick, and then he and Cole finally deliver the double clothesline for the win. You know, I get that that's the gimmick, but it's also about suspending disbelief, and I have a hard time buying the fact that guys that are kicking out of poison ranas and destroyers these days, yet a basic double clothesline is what does them in. There was a weird situation next. Samoa Joe enters the ring for his match, and then suddenly MJF attacks him from behind. I'm not sure what the story is there, but all I could think of is that one video in NXT where Joe kind of just brushed MJF to the side when he was used as a security guard. Even if that's what this stems from, I'm not sure if it's a wise decision for AEW to draw attention to a competing company. But that leads into Samoa Joe defending the ROH television title against Shane Taylor. This is another match with no real story attached to it that really could have happened on any random ROH episode. I'm not sure why this was important enough to be saved for pay-per-view. Excalibur noted that Taylor tapes his wrists instead of his fists because it adds more stiffness to his punches. Joe locks on the Kakina clutch with both guys trapped in the ropes and Taylor counters with a suspended stunner. Joe responds with some stiff knee strikes and then goes back to the Kakina clutch in the ring for the win. Darby Allen is up next challenging Luchasaurus for the TNT title even though Christian Cage claims to be the actual champion. Christian has definitely been the highlight of this entire feud. Darby tries to sneak attack the monster but ends up being launched into the guardrail at ringside which busts him open. There was a spot where Darby is trapped under the ring steps with the steps positioned on his lower back and Lucha just stands on them. JR also joins the announcers at this point, replacing Kevin Kelly. Luchasaurus then rips off Darby's bandages around his ribs and chokes him with them. As Luchasaurus applies a torture rack, Christian tries to get Nick Wayne to throw in the towel. Darby eventually escapes and then takes Christian down on the floor with a dive through the ropes. Christian then attacks Wayne with a chair and threatens a concerto which distracts Darby, allowing Luchasaurus to deliver back-to-back -back tombstones and then a snake eyes, followed by a northern lariat to the back of the neck to finally keep the title. A very surprising outcome here, but a decent match. Miro versus Powerhouse Hobbs was up next. I think the crowd definitely made this one. They were on fire throughout with various chants. Miro had the early advantage until eating a stiff clothesline from Hobbs. Aubrey starts counting them out on the floor, but for some reason stops at the count of three and just stops counting altogether, which seems customary in AEW. Miro delivers a series of clotheslines and then the beats of the Badrin out of Sheamus' playbook. He applies the accolade, but Hobbs actually powers his way back up and forces Miro into the corner. Miro answers back with a spinebuster and then goes back to the accolade to finally get the submission victory. After the match, they shake hands, but then Hobbs sneak attacks Miro from behind. Miro's wife, CJ Perry, the former Lana, finally makes her AEW debut, and no tables were harmed in the making of this segment. She blasts Hobbs from behind with a chair to no effect, but then Miro delivers some chair shots of his own, which sends Hobbs packing. Miro then looks awkwardly at his wife, like, what are you doing here? Ruby Soho challenged Chris Statlander up next for the TBS title, 
I just love that Statlander is the one they chose to end Jade's undefeated streak, and yet she still remains in the exact same position on the card that she always was. What a waste of two years. Soraya takes some cheap shots. Wait, I thought she was the babyface now after last week. Oh right, it's AEW. Ruby then goes into a sequence of offense, including a Poison Rana, Tornado DDT, and Kneeling Hurricane Rana, and then the Destination Unknown. But then Tony Storm comes down and steals the spray can that Ruby intended to use, which allows Statlander to deliver Sunday Night Fever to keep the belt. Who's even supposed to be the babyface in this match? Brian Danielson took on Ricky Starks in a strap match up next. Starks initially refused to put the strap on and started beating on Danielson with a weight belt. Danielson did get busted open at one point, but came back and placed Starks in a tree of woe position while choking him with the strap. Starks then started bleeding himself as Ricky Steamboat was on commentary during this match. Starks was wailing away on Danielson with the strap, but eventually wore himself out, and then Big Bill got on the apron, but Steamboat pulled him down and started chopping him. Bill then starts choking Steamboat, but Danielson launches Starks over the top rope onto them at ringside. Back in the ring, Danielson hit some stomps to the face and then applied the label lock while using the strap to choke Starks out, and Starks eventually faded, so Danielson wins, and again, I have no idea who's supposed to be the babyface. Nigel is at ringside and acknowledges the winner of the zero-hour battle royal, Hangman Page, who will donate his earnings to the Chicago Public Education Fund. Eddie Kingston and Katsuyori Shibata face Claudio Casagnoli and Wheeler Yuta up next. Kingston and Claudio almost immediately engage in a hockey fight. There was a great spot where Claudio and Shibata exchange European uppercuts back and forth. Claudio then hits a neutralizer on Kingston, but he kicks out at two. Kingston responds with a spinning back fist. As Shibata chokes Yuta against the ropes, Kingston gets momentarily distracted and walks right into a European uppercut from Claudio, giving the heels the win. Kenny Omega versus Konosuke Takeshita. There was a frightening spot early on where Omega gets dumped on his head from a belly-to-back suplex. Taz also replaced JR on commentary here and calls the rest of the show. On the floor, Omega hits a steamroller and then a moonsault off the barricade. Takeshita tries using a chair, but the referee does their job for once and stops it. As Takeshita has the ref distracted, Callus stacks chairs on Omega's chest as he's laying at ringside, and then Takeshita hits a slingshot somersault splash to the floor. Takeshita then delivers an amazing blue thunderbomb off the top rope. Callus then tries to get involved with a screwdriver, but Omega catches him. Callus avoids getting hit and plants the screwdriver in the canvas near the apron. Kenny then hits the V-trigger and loads up for the one-winged angel, but Takeshita grabbed the screwdriver only for the ref to catch him before he can use it. That doesn't matter, though, as Takeshita regroups and hits a wheelbarrow suplex and then back-to-back -back knee strikes to Omega's face for the surprisingly cleanish win. The eight-man tag is second from the top with Bullet Club Gold taking on the Young Bucks and FTR. It's fast-paced from the get-go, and the Bucks nearly get booed out of the building, as I think we all expected. There was a cool spot where the babyface team had sharpshooters on all four of their opponents at the same time. They were trying to tell the story of the Bucks and FTR having communication problems, but also trying to work together. As expected, the ref lost complete control by the end, and as no one knew who the legal men were, White snuck in and drilled Cash with a blade runner out of nowhere, allowing Colton Gunn to pick up the win for his team. Ending the weekend is the match for the international title between Orange Cassidy and his challenger, John Moxley. Moxley starts very aggressively, and OC is busted open almost immediately after being thrown into the ring post head first. Mox then sets up to pile drive OC on the exposed concrete floor, but OC counters with a beach break on the floor. 
Back in the ring, Moxley delivers a lariat, and Orange immediately nips up. He then hits a second clothesline and two Death Riders to finally put him away and win the title. The show ends with a massive ovation for Orange Cassidy. I may not like the guy, but I can't deny his popularity. So that'll do it for another week. The next couple of weeks will be dedicated to Terry Funk and Wyndham Rotunda, respectively. Until we meet again, I leave you with an 8BC. Yeah.